Hello and welcome to Generation Balm, the podcast built with our bare hands. My name is William, coming to you from the Millennials, and I'm joined by my father, Neil, a baby boomer by name and uh, nature. Tonight we are uh, discussing... <laughs> Doesn't matter, we'll, go... <laughs> we'll learn tonight. Uh, tonight we're discussing uh, learning and feigning leadership, a topic that uh, permeates every moment of our lives, but still remains such a mystery uh, as a topic. But I thought we'd have some uh, family bonding first, so... Uh, so Neil, well, of course, welcome. How are you? I'm ready to be bonded. <laughs> now, we were actually discussing a moment ago uh, about uh, reading and literature, and I was thinking, um, is there a book that has inspired your worldview? Oh, there's been a lot, um, but probably the one most recently, and I picked it up again to read it again for the third time, which probably means I'm not a particularly good reader because I don't recall <laughs> it all, but um, The Narrow World to the... Deep North. Narrow Road, it? yeah. Yeah, the Narrow Road. It is... I mean, it's it's all, it's based on... I think it's based on um, Weary Dunlop's life and that the time in the uh, the Burma Railroad. But it's be- It's just beautifully written and there's enough in it um, just to, to really keep you going. But it, the way it describes some of the difficulties that they must have faced in that and then the enormous, I guess, courage and bravery within it. And it talks a lot about, it wasn't not just the one side, not just mm. the diggers. It was also about the the other people that, who looked after them. I mean, the, the, the soldiers who, who, who the Japanese. bashed them. The, ja- yeah, the Japanese was, were... Yeah. Even the Japanese, were, we, we see them as, um, you know, people that you wouldn't really want to be imprisoned with. Yeah. But, but at the end, they thought, well, it was probably a pretty tough job that they had even it was a really very interestingly written but the thing about it that was probably most powerful for me is particularly in in our little silly little business of footy and getting people to do what you want them to do and lead them the way and all that sort of stuff the way it was described is that i mean uh, dorigo evans he's he's not not a perfect bloke doesn't mm. behave perfectly all the time had a few flaws in his character or whatever if, if you read through it which is probably designed that way in a sense but when the when the pressure was on, when he really had to do something, his leadership was extraordinary and totally selfless, but really quite powerful. And 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 all of the men got it. And that's you know the story of Weary Dunlop. We all kind of know about. But the way this is portrayed mm. is nearly the best leadership book I've read. Yeah. And it's really a novel. And you read through it, you really enjoy it. It's quite a quite a significant book. Well, it was written by Richard Flanagan, who yes. has a really interesting story himself. I remember he was, I think he was a painter or, or something like that till he was 29, and then he just threw that down and started writing. And I suppose that shows a bit of leadership in itself. Yeah, well, it's an interesting write as well, because because um, Martin Flanagan wrote The Line, which is yes. virtually the same story, but it's mm-hmm. more from his dad's complete um, memory of it. Um, and it's a tiny book compared to the other one, but they're, they're virtually the same story. I don't know whether they blew about it amongst each other as brothers, but, <laughs> um, but it's if you read both, it's, they're both beautiful things to read. But the way the nuances in the in the novel, if you like, are just just fantastic, and, and it hasn't changed my life because I'm not going to go to war or any of that sort yes, of stuff. But yeah. it's really <laughs> marvelous, marvelous to read. Well, we're speaking to a very nuanced man tonight, uh, the founder of Leading Teams. Uh, we've got Ray McLean in the studio. 
Uh, one of he's actually one of the major figures uh, in Australian sport, and we don't know a whole lot about it. Well, you do, Neil, of course. I do, yes. But uh, <laughs> too he, much, probably. He, he's worked <laughs> at sporting clubs such as uh, the Hawthorne Football Club, the Australian Boomers and Opals, the Australian Cricket Team, New South Wales Waratahs. But prior to that, Ray, you were a teacher, and mm-hmm. you were part of the RAAF. Yep. So, Ray, I'm going to ask you now: what what are the pillars or foundations that uh, Leading Teams was built upon back in 1992? Um, basically, the the um, the evolution of the model that we apply to leadership and teamwork was developed in the in the Air Force um, when I was um, sent. I was posted to the Maritime Patrol Group, and they fly the Orion aircraft, and there's about twelve or so on a crew, um, and we felt that we weren't necessarily developing. The, the crews in the most effective way. What we noticed was that we were training everyone technically the same. So everyone came to the squadron and they were qualified pilots and navigators, what have you. And then when we put them into crews, they performed differently. And so the question was asked, well, why does that happen? If it, it's, it's just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. But it did in, in that we focused very heavily on the technical side of their training. Um, the, you know, they all had the qualifications. But we, we hadn't paid much attention at all to the what we call the dynamics, if you like, of teamwork. And that's when you collect people together and actually have to get them to work. And so we started to explore that. And really, that's the journey. Um, I, I thought, you know, if I jumped forward to where we are now in really simple terms, what we started to, to toy around with then was that in these teams, there was a need to be able to have some sort of an agreement in the team about behaviour. Um, so some people call it values, you know, you can call it, but it's that idea of we've got something that we is a reference point for us. Um, that, the, that's so they can re- rely on each other. Which yeah, is correct. And and also, again, so that we you don't just have a team collected together who are using their own moral compasses as the guide. So it gives us a collective view. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to change personality, but it does mean that I bring me into the team and I understand that in this team, though, these are the four or five things that we're really not going to negotiate on. If you want to be a part of this team, this is what you've got to really do. And I think that was one piece. And then the other part for us was that, okay, so that's one thing. You get that together. Now, that either comes to life or doesn't. you know. And, and if you walked around corporate Australia, you'd find 90% of buildings would have some sort of a guiding statement and mm. some people wouldn't know it exists. Or So what was the next piece? And the next piece was that within the teams, we needed to be able to build a strength in our relationships at a professional level to then be able to have a discussion about these behaviours. So we call that a genuine conversation. So really in simple terms, uh, there's the, from a leading team's perspective, we would say that we wanted teams to be clear about why they existed have some agreement about behaviour, have some some strength in their professional relationships so that they could then have the conversations with one another when they needed to happen about those behaviours. And and really, uh, everything else that we do sort of falls off that. Yeah. The only thing is, of course, that somewhere in there, we need leaders so, to take that responsibility and drive it. So that's that's almost it in a nutshell. Right. So so with a leader, we're always we're always told that leaders are born or mm. that they're made. Well, or... just just back into this one, the, the kind of the one one part of this is that it's the military model, so that leaders are almost 
I mean, you're the by hierarchy. therefore by hierarchy, you're mm. there. So that, mm. that, that's be the interesting part of this. Did well, you see, have if many you, problems with that? Yeah, well, that's why maritime was such an interesting world because it was the uh, arguably the you know, one of the few places where rank wasn't considered... Oh, because a, a, you're an expert in something else. And yeah. you, you yeah. went on to the aircraft and we just had to function. And so um, I knew that that unique little part of the world that I was living in was contrary to the way the rest of the military ran. And so <clears throat> it, it was an interesting dilemma to see the hierarchical, rigid hierarchical, uh, uh, you know, Yeah, compared life. to the, the reality of the The reality was when they walked yeah. onto the aircraft, it, it didn't matter whether you were Flight Lieutenant McLean or wherever it was, if you needed to be told something, done, you know, they just functioned. So did that, is that the kind of, did that inspire you to think, yeah, that footy might. Oh, absolutely! My because, because that was the natural thing that, that I, yeah. I made yeah. then was yeah. that from you know having been a PE teacher and interested in sport and all that sort of thing, um, I I just saw a synergy straight away. I could see similarities between the air crew and some of their attitudes, positive or negative, to the way that I saw elite athletes. Um, you know that focus, all those sorts of things. But um, the challenge for me as the outsider. I didn't realise at the time I was getting great grounding for what I was going to be doing years later because every sporting environment I walked into, I was an alien as well. Yeah, um, they're, they're the champions. They, were the, yeah. they, were, they played yeah. the AFL and I didn't, you know. Yeah. And, and so everywhere you went, as soon as you push the boundaries somewhat, I remember with one particular AFL club, I was sitting in a match committee meeting one night asking why, why to some of the questions. and. When they'd become so exasperated with me, they said, look, Ray, we've, we've got to explain. So you didn't play AFL. So, <laughs> and, and I used to get that from the aircrew guys. If I pushed them hard enough about, why do we do that? They'd go, well, you know, it's a bit hard to explain because you don't fly. And you, and you always yeah. knew then that they'd got to the end of their run. They could no longer validate that like, other than we they, do it cause. Yeah, it was piss off. <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> that was code for it. So it was good for my resilience. Yeah. And 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 so from there I, I became I was never relaxed. But it gave me clarity about my role. So and so when I walked into sport Australian cricket team, yeah, beautiful. Who yeah. do you play? Yeah, Rich Avon. You know, so <laughs> everywhere I went, you were at you. you that was never going to be your leverage point. Your point had to be, um, you know, that you as a facilitator could help a group hmm. to identify some of those missing pieces to drive performance, and then support some of the leaders who might have needed some development as well, yeah. who had a rawness about them. Um, you know, had some great qualities, but at the end of the day, how can we maximise those? So I suppose that was the challenge. So who was the first elite team you worked with and were you daunted considering what you oh, just said? Well, if you talk about elite in terms of AFL, it was St Kilda. And I went to the camp in 19, the end of 1994. And to be absolutely honest, um, you know, there was a sense of when I was driving down to Lawn, you almost thought, am I going down there to work or should I have my, you know, my autograph book with me? You know, <laughs> you, you were acutely aware that Stuart Law and Robert Harvey and Nathan Burke and those sort of fellows were there. And and, and I, I loved AFL, so I knew all of them. Um, but I, again, the, the preparation that I'd done in my training as a facilitator meant that I was able to distinguish that and say, no, you've got a role to play. And, and so... It, 
I was still nervous. But I'm 25 years in, and I wouldn't I wouldn't go to any session now without still being nervous and still because I think if I lose that, that yeah. will say I'm being complacent. Yes. So, yeah. I, but but no, it was it was daunting enough. There's no doubt about it. But I had to have a belief that this system we developed actually won games. So there was but, a link. But, there was a link there. But your system it has to relate to what, what that organisation is trying to do, doesn't it? Oh, so no, what, what are they yeah. trying to do? Hmm. And you just in a way just help them get there, which I yeah. think people don't quite understand. That's enough. right. It's not. That's not really what you say. It's what they tell you they yeah. want to do. Well, and I then think you help you help them get to where they want to Stan get. Stan Els um, referred to me once. I remember <coughs> when he was introducing me as the bloke who asks the dumb questions, and he meant it in the nicest possible way. But but that's exactly what he was saying. Is that sometimes I'd sit there with a perspective and say, "Well, why, why do we do that?" And and if you could get people to think, well, mm, yeah. As a matter of fact, mm, okay. That that was your role. It was, but in relation to improving performance, not just to come in and make change, to be able to say, and so you had to believe, for example, that a part of this was fundamentally that if you can have people feel somewhat engaged and empowered mm. in in their team, that they'll offer more. You know that, and so that was that was a new way of thinking yeah. a little bit too. You so know? you're sort of interrupting that chain <coughs> of complacency or going along yeah. with the values that were no uh, placed on a side or well, a club. Well, I think one of the and and you 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 broke paradigms. So you broke paradigms along the way. So when I first got into the AFL system, I wasn't a part of it. But what I saw which I don't think those that were in it saw as closely, was a very rigid hierarchy. And when young players come in, they were ostracised somewhat. Um, you, had to, you, you, you had to earn your stripes. You had to, you know, all this sort of stuff. And, and, and you know, some of the, you know, let's call it initiation, but, it, but that idea of, yeah. you know, you had to, like I can remember at one club, a young fella walked in, put his bag down and a bloke, come and picked it up and threw it down the other mm. end of the room because that's where the young blokes go. Yeah. It, it, that's bullshit, really. You know, like, it, it, and so I felt all the way through we were breaking some of those things down to say, how do you reckon that young fella feels, and do you reckon he's going to play at his best if he doesn't even know your name or or you don't know yeah. his name? Yeah, those. So I I knew that we were doing some things which were contrary, but then that was no different to the air crew, or that was no different to workplaces. We we somehow then started to think, well, perhaps if we can find a more seamless way to bring them in and. And we actually support them, and we, you know, and I thought that was so. They were some of the subtleties, but some of the deeply held principles were still the same. That if you've got a group of people yeah. engaged together, you know, you go back to the war, and if you, yeah. <laughs> but that's why in the war you had some marvelous stories about certain units that behaved, performed, you know, admirably. Probably still following pretty much the same principles. They had real clarity of purpose of the mission. They were well led. They had a real sense of bond through behaviour, and whereas others, other up and uh, whereas yeah, others just easy. scattered and yeah. ran. You know, like um, I, I know when I was in the military, there was uh, I had to do. You know, you had to always be writing papers and qualifying for your next uh, bits and pieces. And and that in the uh, in the Gulf War, uh, Saddam Hussein actually sent his conscripted soldiers to the front line 
and everyone was shocked and horrified that when the heat started, they just threw their rifles down, you know. Like, they, there was no... They had no itch for the fight at all because of all of all of the above. They didn't know why they were doing it. They, they sort of had... They'd only been told to go. And so that was, um, you know, that, that, that's, that rule's held up. I think we... I've said it yeah. in a way that, you know, those with the most invested are the last to surrender. Yeah. And if yeah. you have little investment... Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, though, that the influence of, say, the coach in all this, because mm-hmm. particularly in our game, it's it, it's really powerful. And then mm. some love it, some don't. What, what have you seen there? I don't, don't need you to... Some love... You know, slaughter any no, 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 but like but... Some, some coaches like the like the control, some yeah, some don't. Well, I, again, I think it's about the coach being clear. Um, I think some coaches are not clear enough about their own philosophy, and so they coach in a way. Um, and I, I think I think that's part of part of a great coach is they, they they're clear about their principles, you know, and, and their philosophy, and so then they then they can marry up. I think when when they're sort of you know, being an autocratic coach because that was the way we always did it. Mm. They they get found out too quickly, um, and and you know I, when I started with the Swans with Rusey, I thought that was one of the easy parts. We became quite a, uh, you know, we knew we'd get on and work together fairly easily because some of his background in terms of developing his coaching philosophy was, as a player, he always wondered why the coach never asked me what I thought, um, and so he made a note. I will ask the players what they think, you know. So did he, did he take any notice? Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. that was the key point. You can't. You can never trip. Yeah. Well, oh, I assume he did. But I'm, I'm, in 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 the corporate world, um, I often say that that's one of the most misinterpreted terms is empowerment. Because in reality, I can't, as a leader, empower you. Empowerment's actually a feeling you have. So if you've got someone who says, oh, "I empower you," but I'm never going to listen to you, and I actually won't, I won't take up your opinions. After about day two, you go. It's not that empowering. This is not. Yeah. <laughs> so it has. There's that genuineness yeah. in it, and and players detect it or not. And I I fundamentally believe that the Swans leaders, for example, would know that when they sat down with a coach and said, "We're really passionate about this view on whatever it might be," he he always listened pretty intently, and if his leaders who represented the group had a strong view. I didn't see many times where he said, oh, I don't know about that. So so I suppose tr- trust the trust is so. the pivotal yeah. key, yeah. yeah. I mean, you've been coached, Neil, by Tom Haith, and you've both been involved with uh, sporting organisations across Australia, but uh, blokes like Tom Haithy, you know, real old-school uh, style of coaching. Yeah, it's interesting. We are kind of just waxing on that before, thinking, in a lot of ways, Tommy was the like a coercive style of coach. Like, he'd say, this is... This is what I want you to do, and do it. But as an as a man, as an individual, he was he was kind of warmer than his time. Mm-hmm. Like he, he actually cared about his people. He didn't he didn't he wasn't like Paul. He wouldn't mm-hmm. go up to the players. Like, what do you think about this? And all no. of a sudden, we're going to change our game because no. he was so committed to what his mm-hmm. idea of the game was. Mm-hmm. But as a person, as an individual, he respected you within that. Mm-hmm. And even though he looked like looked through you like he couldn't see you sometimes because he said, I don't want to go there. I don't want to have this discussion about you not wanting to train harder or whatever. Um, but he was he was really quite because the players really <clears throat> loved him, and it was probably because he actually backed them in. It was more 
what he showed. He trusted them by backing them in, picking them, not shifting them around too much, picking them yeah, in the I, team, which which is his own kind of way of yeah. Of, but, but if you look at that, empowering them. Yeah, like, but know. if you look at the, the the real base level of that is authenticity or their, yeah, their, that's their genuineness. Yeah. So you you said him yeah. the man. Yeah. So that's the point I was making, I suppose, before Will was that you you. If you've got someone who's not clear about their philosophy, then what I think in the end shows through under duress is that we look at them and go, so what do you really stand for? Yeah, under pressure, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And, and, you, and you as a buffet, yeah. where am I going to fit Absolutely. in this? Because one of the things that I've, I've said, you know, it doesn't, it's not only in sport, it's in court, it's in life, is that we have a, we have a, a sort of a safety mechanism as humans, and that is to say... You know, when we're in an organisation or a team, what really gets rewarded here? Yeah, that's exactly now. If there's congruency, and congruency is a key word in leadership, but if there's congruency between what the leader says and does, and what we as an organisation say we're going to do and we do, then people can actually live pretty comfortably there. But but if we if you come in and you hear trumpeted up the front that this is what we're going to do and this is what, mm. and then you go day two, holy like a molly it's not quite like that well, didn't, didn't you mentioned him. <coughs> no. you, you mentioned before about being a leader in the moment mm. rather than being a leader probably by the principles that mm. are guiding you so mm. to be a leader in the moment what does that actually take well to be to be a leader in the moment again requires that deep understanding of self and and your philosophy but it's to understand that as you go through the day to day you're building the resilience so that under pressure that's when you're actually at your best so because that's one of the that's one of my when I, I look at organizations and it's not just footy but it's footy's the obvious one the test the test of of the people is the people with power there's no real test on people who haven't got power if you've got the power the test is on you to actually do what you say you're going to do mm-hmm. if, we, if all of a sudden that happens Everyone else goes, oh, holy hell, we've got a chance here. So, because under pressure, he's going to behave that way, we're going to trust him. And, we go, and, we, and the sporting examples are thrust up at us because in Australia we, you know, we, we love sport, or you know, generally speaking. But if you look at some of the really bad corporate examples, you, you have, um, you know, uh, Enron's a great example or others, but, you know, they, they had corporate values, they held all sorts of things. But when the company was actually going down and they were appealing to their people for more effort and, you know, hang in, then at the same time were taking massive amounts of money at the top level. Surprisingly enough, someone's saying, well, you know, we're sort of tightening our belt here, but we, we don't see much. And so that's that congruency piece again. Um, you know, Chachillian like speeches from leaders is not overly effective if you don't back it up <laughs> no. with action. Yeah. And no. so that, that idea of, um, you know, again, hearing the rhetoric but not seeing it matched up, I, I think that's probably the deepest and, point. And even I often... We often talk about. I mean, you look at the Richmond Footy Club, which where we are right this very second. They were a, the the greatest team of their era between '67 and '82. Mm. Sixteen years, top ten, top four, ten times, five flags. Was it seven grand finals? I suppose. Yeah, you know, like a wonderful team. And then that's '82. And then by 1989, they're rattling cans. They're they're done. Mm. And so you look back. So what happened now? What that tells us is that it's a really competitive place. It's it's hard to maintain your position. Um, you've got to recruit, 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 develop, 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 all those sort of things. It's hard to maintain that. 
but a lot of it, you look at it, you say, well, they, they kind of lost their way because of that thing, the challenges of how do you treat people. Because they became ruthless, really ruthless about sacking players, getting new players in. They had that big big blue with Collingwood and half of their blokes went to Collingwood and half the Collingwood blokes came in. So the, the, the run-of-the-mill player, he, go, he looks at it and goes, what the hell's going on? Mm. Like, and, and we as a club demanded enormous loyalty from our players and all that, and, but gave virtually none. Well, yeah, I, I would have thought time. that, that you know, Hawthorne's another fine example of that. You know, through the 80s, couldn't be touched. And again, oh, yeah. and, emerge and, with a lot, of, a lot of it is the challenge of competition. But yeah, I think, yeah, I think well, in Richmond's case, I think they probably lost their yeah, way. Yeah, but I think the, the challenge... I, I, if I had to say which is the bigger challenge, it's not the challenge of the competition. It's it's your challenge to be able to stay aligned yeah. and stay and stay true to your course. And if yeah. you don't know what the course is, see, you know, if you read the historical pieces, I wouldn't know, but the historical pieces around Hawthorne was that, you know, that family club, powerhouse, sausages on the barbecue on a Thursday night, so then all of a sudden, you know, a completely different feel at executive level and other things, and then, you know, the stars of their team who didn't finish there went off and all, and you, you piece it all back. But hmm. it's not the pieces, it's overall that understanding of do we know what we stand for hmm. and and are we under duress prepared to make decisions which will hold the course? Well, that's, that's why you got, you got leaders like Churchill who was a great wartime leader hmm. and then... In peacetime was pretty ineffective. Mm. Is that is that a similar thing at sporting clubs? You got players, uh, leaders for the the great times, and you got leaders who are well, better in quiet be. times. No. By our principles, it should. No, be. no, no. If what's important is what's important. Whether mm. you're winning or losing. Yeah, yeah, no. So no, I think I think again, if I look at you know successful examples over the longer term, it's the alignment of the key centres of influence that I would call them. Um, and understanding that this is what we stand for, and this is, and so you know, again, I'm I'm a fan of Sydney because we we've had an involvement there. But when I when I went back there earlier this year, there's still you know Andrew Island. There's still, and they've brought Tom Harley in, who's got an understanding of how you know organisations work well like that. You go down to John Longmire, who followed in Paul Ruse. Then you look down, and you've got Stuart Maxfield and. Um, Nick Davis and Jared Crouch and, and, and there's people from the immediate past that have actually come into the organisation so that's another point which helps the sustainability is that if you've developed a strong culture it's okay to recruit, not everyone but it's okay to recruit from within that if you haven't and you keep recruiting from within it, that's equally as that's that's <laughs> that's the very downside yep. so I think that that's what I've liked about the so there's a connection there um, and a subtle understanding. This is what we are. This is what we stand for. Um, and then you can hand the baton on somewhat. And so that's, uh, I think that's what's more relevant when we talk about leadership in so, that sense. So for the layperson, um, when we talk about a leadership vacuum and you get a, a club or an organisation that doesn't have any true leaders that you can identify, how, mm. how do you uh, sort of start to change that within how can you find leaders or identify leaders? Well, there, there will always be... I've, I've always had a feeling that when I enter a club, for example, if, if it's an AFL club, <clears throat> there'll be something there. You're not totally devoid of it. Mm. Usually what's happened is the organisation hasn't had a clear enough understanding about what they stand for, so who who's a relevant leader? You know, there's an old adage that says if you aim at nothing, you're certain to hit it, and that's a bit like this. If you don't know what you want, then who can lead? So 
Um, that's often what's created the vacuum, the, the, that inconsistency. You know, it might be that we've sacked three coaches in a row and we've got you know two new CEOs and no one's been quite clear about what we're doing. And that creates a legitimate vacuum, but it's not the, it's not the players in a sense and it's not that there's been a problem with leadership development it's how do you develop it if you don't know so and i think then that's when you can get to a point where you do have to draw the line but Mm. this year for example i'm working with newcastle knights in the nrl now their system was decimated two years ago like they they had an owner who promised the world he went broke had a coach who's the best ever and he just shot through (laughs) and they had all sorts of issues (laughs) and this year after having had to do a fair bit of cleaning out we were starting from scratch and our our captain was 20 year old and we saw some real inroads being made (laughs) because he got clarity around what we expected Uh, he didn't feel like he was being thrust in or i have to you know pull the suit man suit on or do it 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 was you know and a group to support him coach understanding where we're going organization prepared to support because we know this is going to be a a longer haul and all of a sudden we had this young fellow doing a terrific job and so that to me again is about the organization getting right first it's defining who you are and what you well, want to if do if you look it? at Once melbourne that, for the yeah. opposite you know they yeah. still hadn't got yeah. themselves right and then they threw the two young fellas in and people say oh you know it was a really bad no well in the right environment who knows you know that's but, what but, i mean but, but what they did worse than that is that they really said to anyone who was over 24 still in their program you're, oh. you're no good yeah <clears throat> yeah and, and that's, they didn't say that per se, but no. that's what they meant. Yep. So all of a sudden, it's rather... And not only have you got these two 19, 20-year-olds mm. who are supposed to drive the place, you've got all these blokes who have got quite Some, significant yeah. influence. Who, who They're are sitting no there going, well, well, they obviously think we're no bloody But do you see what I mean, though? That's why I, I, I don't think we're disagreeing there. What I'm saying is that's still a lack of clarity at the high oh, no, level of the organisation. Yeah, so what are we impossible. trying to do? Yeah. And so I, I, I think that's when, um, you know, for... for Newcastle, it was just refreshing to know that we we were able to cope with all that. And by the end of the year, you know, beat Parramatta, start strung three wins together, you know, and you could see the you know there's a real momentum here. But the momentum's coming with a real base to it. So, um, but if we hadn't got ourselves right, then we would have just chewed that young fella up and spat him out. Oh, yeah. Been looking for another one somewhere down the track exactly and and that's and that's that i so there's a real hierarchy to it and the organizational piece has to precede that you know Mm. those real fundamental building blocks about you know why are we here what are we trying to achieve how are we going about it in terms of those agreed behaviors and so we go but it's the constant uh, (coughs) commitment and language that the coach the footy manager no doubt. What we use around the whole thing, and people, that, and that bit, well, everyone's we're all in the team together. We all understand what people underestimate a lot: the power of language and mm. the power of storytelling in cultural links. Yeah, they say storytelling as a leadership tool is well. It's, it's, it, now there's there's a, there's a, a pool of data that's starting to come out that's saying that they that's probably the most powerful thing. And if you think about it, when you go into an organisation. Think about in a poor organisation how quickly you get exposed to some of the really s- sordid stories about how bad we are, <laughs> whereas in a good organisation, some of the ones about this is what we stand for, or that you, you know if you do the wrong thing, you might get challenged by someone to say no, they, you know we don't do it that way here, and and it's subtle, but 
but it's 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 really different in terms of impact. And so, you know, when I that's why I always worry in organisations when they you know you'll see them cycling through programs. Now that can be corporate or sport. And so there's another person who comes in. There's another layer of language, another another way of saying things. And what it does do is create. If you've been around for a while. You almost say, "Oh no, I've heard this before. Don't worry, just hang on to your hats. This will this will pass," and it creates a cynicism in the organisation. So I've seen that deeply entrenched in some corporate organisations where you see people yeah, are almost saying, again. "Yeah, we, we're going after the team building thing again," you know. And you can it, it almost reeks of that because people have not seen the congruency from when we made these statements, when we talked to one another. And what actually got dished up in the finish? And so, generally, that'd be a, a, a situation where the uh, it sort of rots at the head. Yeah, right? no doubt. Yeah. If you if you want to, that's why I don't mind if I'm working with you know organisations holding the the leaders, you know, the power brokers' feet to the fire a bit closer because they right, should. Nice. All right. Yeah. Well, the circumstances if you don't, where that work. circumstances where that would make the uh, the leaders of the organisation very uncomfortable. No, perhaps. And, yeah. if you, and if you're not prepared for that, I'm not sure that you, you should be putting it. You normally don't last. You, you normally <laughs> don't last. And my question to some of them too is that, and why would you be the one putting your hand out for the higher paycheck? Yeah, if, exactly. you, if you don't want a level of accountability with that. So, right. I, yeah, I think that's, I expect that that should be something you want. And then, um, as I said, from there, being prepared to model it. Um, so, um, I've, I've, I've real, I've, seen quite a few examples of where if the leader doesn't get that and you're talking about accepted behavior and the, you know what do we want to see in our team and those sorts of things I'm always working hard with the leaders to say do you understand the implications of what we're putting up here yeah and you, me- yeah. you mentioned before about the uh, the difference between uh, influence and leadership mm. um, and this is probably a question to you as well Neil but What's it, what is the difference? What's the distinction between the two in your eyes, both of your eyes? For me, well, for me, it's re- I, I see I see them linked, but I see influence as being a capacity to influence people. I see leadership as a capacity to influence people in the direction we're going. Right. So that's it's an interesting point because one of the one of the things that the people who don't like the leading teams approach, which are not many of them, is. Oh, I don't think there are, but there are some. <laughs> Who they say you, there are a couple of things you don't do, and one is you don't you don't challenge you. Well, what, so this is all just good news. What, what, what about the bloke who's a, no good? How, how do yeah. you deal with him? And and we're scared how we are going to deal with him. Mm. Um, so that's that's that bit about influence and leadership. So you've got to you've got to soon pretty quickly find out what that means, mm. and then if your program's strong enough, well, the bloke who's not behaving in that right way, no matter how good he is. You'll have to do something about it. Yeah, and I think and, and, and there's a tool there to do it. There's no doubt, and I've and and people think it's about you know marching through the place. Anyone who's not on board, get rid of it. Yeah. But but my reality is really that when you're when you've given clarity to people about how we want you to exert your influence, I've had more but, but the clarity, coming aligned. But the clarity you've given them has been from their input as well. It's not, yeah, you don't yeah just no, come no, that's right. This, this is what I want. What, yeah, but, but yeah. that's that's the whole idea of engage like. You know, again, if I use the swans as an example, once they'd embedded the bloods culture, that became your piece. Now, if someone drifted off the track, you just you, you reminded them, and if they were this exerting the influence, yeah, yeah and, this, and, and it wasn't it wasn't you know with a gun held to your head or anything like that. I think you're right. It's just that idea of choice. But if you so 
you know, I think we're, we're all, um, and, and I may have made the point that one of the clubs I worked at, I, I actually posed that question to the group. I split them into small groups and said, name the influential people in the group. And one of the young fellows said, do you mean positive or negative? Way? <laughs> so that, that, that whole idea that we're, we're sort of aware of the subtlety of that, so okay. we do know that people influence. It happens in schools. I, I love seeing it at some schools where they elect prefects. <laughs> and they, they say, well, you know, the kids can select them. And then the kids select them and they go, well, he's no good. Yeah, it's always and, a and the bags. teachers yeah. actually, you know, put up the shining young lights. And then disregard the influential. Now, I'd want to bring the influential in somehow. And and it, it's, re- it's a really interesting dilemma. Um if I, I, I can give you one quick story. I, I was actually doing some work with a group of young leaders at the school, and, and the school was very conservative, and they did their prefect badges, and staff largely controlled the voting. And they had some of the boys were kicked out of the boarding house for you know a period of time because they'd been drinking. And I said to the young man who was the boarding house leader, well, how did that happen under your watch? <laughs> Knowing full well he had no influence whatsoever. He said, none of them listened to me. You know? and, and it was just perfect. You know, It was just the absolute perfect example of thrown in as a leader mm. with no influence. And so this group of influential boys decided that what was good for the school is if we have a few beers over at the boarding house. Now, clearly we needed to convert the influence to somewhere yeah. near what the school wanted. But I, I thought those really simple examples continue to just reinforce it for me. They're just so clear. Yeah, well, we've know? seen recently with uh, Jake Stringer at the Western Bulldogs who's sort of been pushed out there. And obviously there's some sort of influence he's having over the group for them to decide that he's part of the, the problem. Mm. But then there's also the example of Richmond where Jack Revolt obviously has a massive influence has been brought into the leadership group to, to great effect. What is, yeah. Well, I think, again, it's so... The only thing I would say there is that I, I, I tend now not to comment mm. too much on the ones I don't know because I do know you've got to be inside to know. That's yes. very true. Yeah. That's the bit which I've really learned. And, and, and of course, media and others will speculate. Yep. But, but um, yeah, I've, I've seen some really good examples over my time of where the outside perception doesn't come anywhere near to mm. what, you know... Yeah, I, good, I, bad, I, or otherwise. I, I can I can say <clears throat> something about um, Jack because you mentioned it, and because clearly I, I can, I've only been here five minutes, um, and it's so was so clear that Jack had a lot of influence. Hmm. He's a very good player, but he had a lot of inf- influence and actually cared about the place. And a lot of the discussions with him was was clear what he wanted. He wants hmm. this place to be a, a club of choice for all players. He wants us to be respected. He wants us to win. He wants all this stuff to happen, which is the same as. The other blokes did as well. And mm. So I was thinking, what's happening here? And it was only because of the different personalities. So we, so we, it was really very much that. Okay, well, what what do we want to achieve? What do we want to stand for? What What do you think, Jack? What do you think? Yeah. So Rancy, what do you like, What do you think, Koch? And they all yeah. said felt the same thing. So well, if you guys can work together, yeah. this will be a very powerful leadership group. Yeah, of course we can. Almost harnessing like, the, yeah. the influence to yeah. make. Yeah, no really doubt, no doubt. And and that's why the choices around that are so important because if if you don't have that conversation, then people who have that capacity to influence, influence in the ways that they have known. Yeah, that's right. And so yeah. that may be useful, but it may not be. But if you can harness it, which is what we're saying, and that's what I see the difference between influence and leadership, is that in some ways leadership's very much about harnessing the influence the influence yeah, and, and, yeah. into the direction, the direction that and you really want. The, the the agreement between the, the three 
key leaders was, are you going to support each other? Absolutely, mm. absolutely, absolutely. You mm. know, and that's really what their own, their, their commitment was to each, each other within the three and to the coach. And that's just gone all the way down through the group. So it's, um, you know, it doesn't mean they always behave perfectly, but it's very easy to go, oh, hang on, and you're trying to, yeah, okay, right. So it's very easy to get them back on. Now, we just about got through the entire show here. It's been a great chat. But yeah. um, just as a question to both of you at the uh, the end, I suppose, who's the most outstanding leader that you've come across, uh, both in your time in football and also, I suppose, outside of football? I get asked this yeah. a bit more, so if I yeah. tell you off first. <laughs> um, the, I, I rest with Stuart Maxfield okay. um, because when we started that, whole you know process of building a culture at Sydney I just never I, I haven't come across a bloke who took it so personally <laughs> you know <laughs> this was it and um, he was a zealot you know um, he, he he lived his life by it he you know he used to say that 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 board that we've got at the door every day I come and look at it and I think am I living that or not you know and and would drive others he was hard uh, so sometimes he would drive them really hard, yeah. but just as much he had a capacity to grab a young fella, put his arm around his shoulder, and encourage him. And I and and I I just loved his legacy. And when you when you look at Sydney and their leadership, there is a culture of leadership in a sense because people say, oh gee, Brett Kirk was a bit like Stewie Maxwell, was a bit like yeah. Jared McVeigh, was a bit like, and you go, yeah. So, so during your time there, did you foster that culture of the bloods? You know? Well, that's that came from the first conversation. Right. So that was that was that that was one of the nice things about being there. I've still got a old yellow piece of paper with some scribbling on it that was the first meeting, and um, I, I've had it laminated so that it can be protected somewhat. Yeah. But I, yeah. I showed that to um, some of the younger guys, um, uh, and this is about the legacy and the Maxfield thing. So I haven't diverted the question but um, um, I remember you know young, one of the young fellows in the group was talking enthusiastically about the bloods and what they stood for and I said and down in the corner of this bit of paper is 2002 which was when it was written and I said where were you in 2002 he said um, hmm, just leaving kinder you know? <laughs> and so great story because all of the good things that should happen in a culture have happened there it's transcended past a group yeah right um, right Someone in there somehow convinced this young fellow that he could have just as easily been there that day. That's mm. why I go for Maxfield. Having said that, I would put the waiver in that I could name another yeah. ten quick smart, but you know I always lean to him for that. You know that cultural impact. Yeah, I find it hard. Like people even ask me, "Who's the best player you've ever seen?" And I, and I, I don't, I mustn't see the world in that way. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't like to go to just the one. There's a lot of you know good examples players, of it, yeah. but. I mean, just just interesting seeing seeing the way Koch has developed this year here. Like he, and it, it's been said a few times. Like he's accepted his vulnerability in life. Like that seems a weird thing to say about a bloke who wants to play footy. Because if someone had said that way back, said, well, we don't have any vulnerability, but he's accepted that. Okay, he will just be as good as he can be. Instead of like you, you can see from a side that he's carrying yeah. the world around his shoulder. I wish mm. I could be better. I wish, wish I wish we could be better. Now he's saying. I'm going to be as good as I can be. Look out. Yeah, I think I so mentioned it with a, you, yeah. with, with Koch. I always said, oh, that guy just needs to have a beer and just relax. And so yeah. this year he seems to have had a couple yeah. of beers. Like, <laughs> but but he's, he's had like the metaphorical beer. He's gone, yeah, oh, yeah well, I'm going to do what I can. I, I believe in this place and I'm going to do everything I can to help you guys. I'm going to be the best coach, I can, the best leader I can be. But 
whatever it is is what it is. Mm. Um, so that, that's an interesting one. But I mean, I, I've been lucky enough to be involved with uh, with Joel Selwood in the mm. early days, and I shouldn't say this because they're not out of the finals. They might <laughs> have to play him again, but he's a pretty exceptional young man. But um, but but there's a lot. There's a lot. I mean, see, lot I, I, again, uh, once you yeah, start, yeah. Oh, Simon yeah. Goodwin, you could see that he was going to be something the same at, at Adelaide. You know, um, had that level of influence, so you could pick. You could go at Luke Hodge, you know, I was fortunate yeah. enough through his tenure, um, you know, but Hodge, gets enough of the accolades, rightfully. Yeah. Um, you know, he was the bloke who's, you know, knock about, but um, able to galvanise people, influence people, and most importantly apply under heat those leadership attributes. So I, you know, I think... But as I said, over the journey, I get asked it so often that I thought, no, Bagrat, I'm, I, I am going to stick with Stewie because I, I see I see the legacy and I think that's a huge part of leadership. I think that, you know, when you can um, sort of almost still see the... You can still see the way that players look at him and engage with him mm. now, you know, and he, he's a staff member up there, but... Yep. Um, and I think all of that makes up the, the nice And there's, there's plenty of... And even... I coached Melbourne for a while when Gary Lyon was captain, and he, he was such a committed captain. You know, did he do everything right? Who knows? Probably not, but I tell you what, he is pretty, quite inspirational and really took responsibility for the play. So there's there's plenty of them around. Yeah, and it's some, interesting with some uh, great captains, they don't go on to be great coaches. But uh, do you think sometimes just a disconnect there, or is oh, it? Oh, they're different roles. Yeah, and, and again, yeah, you need uh, to have a particularly, passion, particularly now. Though, yeah, so but you know. need to just have a passion for it. I think what we used to do was to say, well, you know, he was a great player; he can have the coaching job. Yeah, well, oh, that's exactly <laughs> he was a, right. He was yeah. a great painter, but we don't actually get him to do the plumbing. You know, so <laughs> I think that that was that was just a problem with football. Um, we we weren't smart enough in that sense. Now, if you interrogated that person deeply and hard enough to find out that, yeah, I have a burning ambition to do this role, mm. but I, I just don't think we we tried hard enough to find that out, so it just became too seamless to sort of say, you're a champion player, let's throw you and give you a go. But, it, but it, on the leadership sense, I mean, I shouldn't, this shouldn't, shouldn't be so, so Geelongified, but <laughs> see, some, someone like Brian Cook, who's been involved in footy for a fair while, and, he, and he's, you know, he's, he's a normal bloke. Mm. But his capacity to lead that club the way he did, and he had a lot of other people helping him, but he was so he he was fixed on the idea of a values-based organisation before it was almost fashionable. I mean, he did it like not yeah, before not it was quite, fashionable, not, not quite before yeah. the teams, but yeah, no worries. No, no but, you know, <laughs> but by his of course. And I, so I've always found him to be an outstanding yep. leader because, but he was <clears> a great leader the, because he did have that. Uh, that style of, of actually letting you do your job, yeah, but being strong enough to, to but keep if, driving. But, but if right you look direction. at the Geelong example, though, um, it 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 it's a good one. Of not everyone had to be in lockstep, but your key centres of influence. Because I would say Brian was ably sort of supported by Frank Costa, absolutely. You know, and so you had that lineage there, and I think that's the key thing. So if you'd taken Brian Cook and put him into a really dysfunctional football environment it would have been a much more sit now he probably would have overcome it but that idea of you know the frank 
Brian, you know, mm. than some of you other guys yeah. that were there. And I think there was enough in there. And it didn't mean that every one of them was perfect, but it meant that there's enough of you that you carry the yeah, weight. Like the alignment was yeah, there. exactly. Yeah. So I think that's also important. Now, Ray, I've got to ask, we always hear about the dearth of a, uh, leadership in the Australian political system. <laughs> I'm currently reading uh, Paul Keating's book by mm. Kerry O'Brien. Mm. Um, I'm just wondering about... Uh, it's a completely different system, but yeah. it's, uh... well, I, I had a conversation with a with a, someone who ended up being a premier of a state mm. about whether or not a political party could actually be a team, and I think we unfortunately agreed disappointingly at the finish that was too tough. But <laughs> that I, what I, what frustrates me, if you if you like, because I am interested in politics and and the combination, I've found the modern day politician today has become not a leader but a skilled follower. So I think that what happens is that they use focus groups uh, to work out trends and so policy longer term policy doesn't matter. Leadership to me is is stepping out and and making hard calls and sticking to your guns when you need to Um, and I just find now you know we could say we could any of our leaders, this is not about one particular party any of our leaders could say at the moment, oh, this is going to be really important policy, and then the, the, the focus groups say that that's not the case, and they go, okay, well, let's just quickly shift and manoeuvre. So that's the way I, I sort of put it, is they're not leaders now, in my view, they're skilled followers. I'm that, ashamed of our political system. <laughs> I reckon it's well, terrible. Well, I'm, 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 I'm probably terrible. in a more subtle way saying the same thing. Yeah, but it's good. <laughs> but, but, but it's the idea. It's awful, isn't it? We, we, yeah. Should, it should be better. Like we, got, we should be yeah, better but there's do, do we think... should we should take responsibility to yeah. as voters, but but that idea that um, as I said, I I look back and and I had a deep interest in politics in in through the seventies when I was at school, mm. and and one of the things that you look back now and say, okay, the Whitlam government were like they were almost Radicals. crazy, yeah. you know, and three or four of the things that they actually went out on the edge and did, uh, we still have today. But there's about 50 things they tried that weren't so hot. But they were out there trying, and they didn't just say, oh, you know, Medicare's not such a good idea, let's just put it back on the back burner again. They actually said, no, no, hang on a minute. Everyone in Australia deserves to have access to health. Mm. And and, and in it, it's been bastardised along the way and those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, that's where it started. Yes. And so I think we've, we, we've got... And, and if you're on a roll, uh, I think the other thing is that we... we get our politicians from a very shallow, narrow pool now. So yes. yeah. when I looked at that, you know, that Labor government of those days, it was, you know, Clyde Cameron was a shearer and there was all sorts who made up a lot. Now you've got mm. to come through the party machine on either side to actually qualify. Yeah. And so there's a few, so there's a few things. But, and geez, I'll tell you, you why would you want to almost? That's the problem. I think, I think <clears throat> the job of running Australia is very, very important. <clears throat> I'm just not, not sure that... Do you think something like longer terms, longer set terms, like six to eight years, would change it, or would possibly? It just be... uh, there's, there's. Uh, I'm, I'm always one who'd love to toy with the idea of non-compulsory voting and just see what we get. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and if we, <clears throat> this has got nothing to do with leadership. But while I'm on a roll, um, in my view, we have one layer too much of government in Australia. Yeah. So state. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I think we could we could save ourselves some heartache and. And, uh, and uh, money. Yeah, I don't have any answers. <coughs> I've just got complaints. Well, well that's the thing. <laughs> Which is not that helpful, I know. The, th- the thing no, right that's, now that's happening that's right. with the plebiscite, I suppose you've seen a real activism in the community. That's sort of been the most inspirational thing, not your government leaders from both sides talking about it. Well, I think that's that, that also is, is why, on one hand, 
I'm agreeing with Barney in saying that, you know, I'm disappointed with that level of leadership. But on the other hand, we as a society need to kick up the arse because really the plebiscite is something, you know, that we have become you know, very passionate about, which is fantastic. But why wouldn't we be arguing as passionately about some of the other things that are relevant yeah. in our country as well? But it Absolutely. seems like they just, ah, oh, well, you know. So uh, you're right. There's a sort of a, there's an apathy mm. that actually, <laughs> it's almost the line that sometimes you get what you deserve. Yeah, and totally so perhaps we all need to take that responsibility. Well, you look well. at the landscape that now it's a 24-7 news cycle. Yep. And I mean, that's for sporting clubs and for political systems. And how much do you think that's actually influenced? Well, the, the problem with this news cycle is there's no reflection. Yes. It's just, this is it. <laughs> Bang. Out it goes. Out it goes. Out it goes. And you say, well, is there any thought behind this? Is there any? Yeah. I mean, there is. That's not totally that way, but a lot of it is just out yeah, but there. Then, but then that's, that's the point about leadership, though, mm. is <clears throat> to what extent then are you obligated to fuel it, feed it, and play with it, or... Can you, and this is this is the point we were talking about when I, I had this discussion about political parties being teams, because I believe fundamentally that if you could have some of the principles of strong teamwork and strong leadership in a political party, you wouldn't you wouldn't use that as your excuse not to behave. You'd actually say, look, they're all over us at the moment, but we need to build this road, or we need to build the snowy mountain yeah, but, scheme, or we need to. But but the problem is the team element of our politics it's not like yeah. let's say it's say it's on the labor yeah. side there's probably three or four teams in there yeah and there's two or three teams in the liberal side Correct. so their teams yeah. is what kill them like their te their teams are, we, yeah we, we, our team's yeah. doing this so, which so is it not still the full team it still doesn't know it, that's that they, was they the need point to be where, in the one team yeah i know <laughs> that but that's that's the point of the discussion we had so when i was saying you know, in this particular case, could you tell me, yeah, you know, what, how would you like your team to be? In. What sorts of behaviours do we accept from one another that we shouldn't? All those sorts of things. Who are you beholden to? But that, but that, to me, is that's the point. The point is that if we want to see a change, somewhere along the line, there has to be a select group okay. within a party who say, you know, the game's up. And I just, you know, it's disappointing, but anyway. Yeah, I suppose in politics you get your left, right, and within we saw with Christopher Pine making a speech saying now the centrals within the Liberals, and I think half the population yeah. would be like, what, what do you mean the, the yeah. central within the Liberal Party, or the middle of the Liberal Party? Well, the positive is that he says yes to the plebiscite. I would never have thought he would have said that. That's, that's <laughs> but if, if, you know, again, what I used to be interested in in politics, in, if we went back to the 70s, is that there when you said Liberal and Labor, you could actually define the difference and know what they stood yeah. for, and on a range of issues. Mm. Whereas the reality of today is that the, those closer to the centre and both both parties would be more comfortable with one another than the extremes yeah, of their own party. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, yeah. But, but, and, and so to me, that just hasn't helped. But I, I used to love the idea that Labor would go, bang, we're going to do this. And Liberals go, no way, we're doing this. And you go, ah, good, two policy differences. Now I can start to think about that. I'd love you to be able to articulate what were the significant policy differences at the last federal election. No, you're right. Where's, that, yeah, where's coal mining and all of this? Absolutely, and all those things. And that's what I mean. Like, I, I just, that's my source of frustration. And a final question. Mm. Do you think a leader can be introverted? 
Absolutely. Mm. The, the, yeah, style doesn't you just, matter. You'll just never hear him. <laughs> uh, that's, there's, a, there's a fellow called Chris Whittaker who, who captained... Whatever else it is. Who <laughs> captained the New South Wales Waratahs and was George Gregan's understudy for years with the Wallabies. And he's one of the better leaders that I'd worked with and was an introvert. Uh, highly regarded by the group. Right. Very strong in terms of holding his ground, but he didn't feel the need to flap his gums overly yeah. or do anything like that. But he he influenced the group in that way. So I'm not a I'm not a great advocate of the idea that the leaders have to be you know necessarily the extroverted. Yeah. Um, their capacity to build relationships is far more important to me than their ability to. I don't I don't know Cameron Smith very well, but looking at him, mm. I don't reckon he'd be that extroverted. No, no, he's not. <laughs> so no, he's a pretty so good if leader. you look at types like and Maxfield wasn't. No, that's you know, right. Yeah, so no, he wasn't an extrovert. Yeah. So I, I just think, again, uh, that's part of good understand... Yeah, I know. That's <laughs> that's so well right. done. Thanks for that. Um, uh, yeah, you almost embedded our culture for us. Well done. Um, the, the idea that um, they understand themselves well and they're in a system that values them, mm. that'll, that'll be the qualifier rather than, you know, introvert, extrovert. What, you know, what yeah, I've, I've sort of thought about it a bit myself too and I think... The value of the introvert is that he doesn't just go and sell stuff for the sake of saying yeah. stuff. If he yeah. tells you something, he believes you know, it. You know, you know that he believes yeah. it. So he's more committed. He's less less likely to go off on the charismatic and if line I, and all that sort of if stuff. If I had to add, for, mm. for me, if I looked back and said, okay, what what's the significant... If I, if I just wandered away now, one of the things I'm most pleased about what I think we we did bring into the game was leadership groups for that reason that you had three, four, five, six people who were yeah. different and mm. their complementary ability made them powerful. Right. So you you could have an... Like, I, I think in the early days when we were at Collingwood and you had Nathan Buckley, but supported by Shane Wakelin and Paula Curia and others, and you had this wonderful blend of people, all who looked at the world a little bit differently, but collectively they had that relationship. And you've just said the same thing mm. that you're saying at Richmond. You know, I suspect that the three or four people you just mentioned have got different characteristics and totally. different... Um, but it's the collective. And so when we first got a leadership group together at St Kilda under poor old Stan, we were flogged. Uh, not me, because I was able to dodge the bullets, but Frank, you know, Stan was getting pilloried in the media. You know, what a stupid thing to do. You know, you only have a captain and a bloody vice-captain. That's all you need, you know. And, and, and he, right. even the fucking vice-captain, he's not that important, you know. And and you think now, yeah. what, a, what, a, what a lonely job that would be if you were the captain by yourself. Yeah, definitely. I mean, So we're, we're very happy I love the old footy sayings, though. There used to be a saying in footy says, the more often you handle the ball, the greater chance you've got of stuffing it up. And even, even as a player and as, as an early coach, that doesn't yeah. make any sense to me. It's what about cricket? Though? You've got the one captain and yeah. at a shame he's in of and of John Buchanan. I didn't have, matter. I have to get <laughs> home to Geelong tonight, so don't start me on that one. That's I'm so, right. well, I'm so glad we didn't even stuck, touch on the other one, <laughs> on cricket. So that's uh, where I will leave it. This has been a fantastic show. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Ray. Pleasure. And Neil. Uh, thank you. And thank you for listening for Generation Balm. Uh, have a great week. We are-